This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Episode 75 of the Equalizer podcast. We took a one-week hiatus for Labor Day, but we're back. Dan Lawletta here with Chelsea Bush and... Also on hiatus Labor Day weekend was the NWSL, but it came back with some very important games this weekend. And Chelsea, uh, let's begin with what I think was the most important result in the two-year history so far of Utah Royals FC and probably the biggest win for Laura Harvey since 2016, when uh, 2015 rather, when the Rain won their second shield. one nothing over Portland in a game that they very easily could have gone Either way, but I thought coming off, what was it, 17 days off, very impressive. And the Royals are legitimately a playoff team. And we've said this the last few weeks now. They were dangling on the edge of falling out of the race, and here they are legitimately in the mix. What do you think? Uh, A couple things. One is I think I get more impressed with Utah every week. I I counted them out for a long time. I thought that the rain would, would surpass them. and. They've, they've done enough to keep them in the mix, and they just they look good doing it. Now, I will say I think that Portland was actually probably the better team on the night, and I think the stat sheet would probably back that up. But combination of some, some truly excellent saves by Nicole Barnhart and the Royals you know, taking advantage of what opportunities they had and, and doing enough to stifle Portland, it, you know, it happened in the end. I mean, unfortunately, that game is going to be notable for other events. Um, but yeah, I, I continue to be, and I think Portland played well. Like it wasn't, it wasn't a bad game. It was, it was what it was. It was a close game. And I, I, and you know, I think we should talk about, I think we should talk about Kristen Prest for both the Royals and particularly really for the U.S. becoming so much more of a provider this year. I think she's great. I think that for years and years I had, you know, Kristen Prest was this player that had all this talent, could score, anywhere on the field, but it just didn't seem to work when her teams needed it. And this year, for whatever reason, has been a brand new Kristen Press for club and country. And I completely agree. There's even a little bit of chemistry building now between her and Amy Rodriguez, which I do think was a legitimate issue. And uh, I think I said this on the last pod we did together that I think if they make the playoffs, she's probably the MVP of the league unless Sam Kerr goes on to score some ridiculous number of goals. Uh, but I think that press coming back from the world cup and being as effective as she's been, has been the single biggest reason that the Royals have turned their fortunes around. Yeah. I think she's been the best U S player since the world cup easily. And I agree with the yes. MVP thing. And I think that she's just, and like I said, not even just scoring the goals as I think in the past, particularly, you know, I'm thinking of her with Chicago. She was always the, you know, center forward, always the target, kind of tended to take it upon herself. And I don't know if that was a reflection of the player she was at the time, 
or reflection of what the team wanted from her. But I thought that also transferred to her play with the U.S. I think now she's becoming much more comfortable and adept at playing more of a wide role, playing, playing like I said earlier, provider. And her service has been excellent. That ball into to Sauerbrunn, of all people, was excellent. The header from Sauerbrunn was, was very well placed. Um, she's press is doing more defensive work than she used to. I, I just, I think she's in, in fantastic form right now. The header was good and Royals don't score enough goals. So they need goals from people like Sauerbrunn. So, and they got, you know, the three points off Sauerbrunn, but that's as bad. I think as French has looked giving up a goal, maybe since she's been in Portland. Yeah, maybe. I think, like I said, I think it was particularly well-placed. I don't think maybe French, I think maybe she reacted a little bit late. Um, but yeah, and her feet got tangled up maybe a little bit. Yeah, I think if, and I think maybe she thought the service was at first looked like it was going to be a little bit too too far, too much to the far post for someone to to directly get a an opportunity on on frame like that because it was kind of from distance as far as headers go. It wasn't like it was you know right up in front of her. Um, but also, if like you said, if if you're a team like the Royals who doesn't score a lot of goals, you've got to take advantage of set pieces like that. So that's yes. particularly good to see. And, you know, a lot of times you get when a center back scores, it's because it's either on a target play or it's on a scenario where the center, where they come up and they're not marked because nobody's expecting them to be there. So nobody's ever talked about how to mark them. But she was kind of marked on that particular play. I mean, that's like a, hey, if you need a goal late, throw Becky Salbrun in the box. That was kind of impressive for someone who doesn't get up there very often. Yeah, and I think on the other end of the pitch, too, something we have to talk about the Royals is their defensive shape. So I found myself watching a lot of other teams this weekend, and, and Portland included, thinking how easily their back lines are, are being pulled out of shape and, and you know, left with too much space in them. I think that's something that the Royals do particularly well at. I mean, you think you have Sauerbrunn and Corsi, I mean, those two extremely experienced center backs. But they do a good job of, of adjusting. If their fullbacks go up, they do a good job of rotating. They pull, you know, Desiree Scott a little bit back. They they get cover from the other fullback. And I just think they do a really, really good job of providing cover. And, again, when you're a team that's not scoring a lot of goals, that that's particularly important. I'm looking at the stats right now, and they have the least goals allowed in the league by – three to uh to North Carolina 15 to 18. Well I think you know early in the season what did they win their first three games all one nothing and then they had a one one draw and lost when they scored one goal and I think that it kind of wears on you when you get when you're always in tight games and they finally not this week but in the last few games prior to this or some of them they actually got multiple goal leads and that actually helps your defense a lot but I agree their defense is very compact very good Nicole Barnhart is if not one of the, you know if not the best one of the best goalkeepers in the league this season and yeah I mean they definitely build it from the back to the front and we've just been kind of waiting on Rodriguez and Press and Rodriguez has eight goals which I didn't realize kind of a quiet eight goals in my opinion but you know goals are goals uh, but yeah I think their defense is terrific I think that Becky Salabrin is not quite Becky Salabrin 2011 through 15. But she's still probably the best center back in the NWSL, right? And her and Lauren, I mean, maybe Barnes is having a better year, but I mean, who would you rather have back there? I think you start, it starts still with Becky Sauerbrunn, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, I agree. She's not saying the same form that she was maybe four years ago, but 
the calmness and, and leadership that she brings, the presence, her ability to help a goalkeeper organize that line, I think is just unsurpassed. Now, um, go ahead. I was going to say maybe we should talk about the other defense on that field. Oh, uh, yeah, that's what I was actually going to uh, go into because this is – I think this year has been the worst Thorn – not maybe the worst, but the most mistake-prone Thorns defense we've seen under Mark Parsons. And now they have to go on short rest to play North Carolina without Emily Sonnet, who got uh, maybe a second yellow card, maybe a yellow and a straight red, but either way she got sent off and won't be available for that game. Uh, yeah, I, I think the Thorns' defense is okay, but I don't think it is the complete and utter strength that it has been in the past three years since Mark Parsons got there. Certainly the last two years. Yeah, I agree. I think as a whole, you know, they really have five starting defenders, and they rotate them a lot. You know, you've got Catherine Reynolds. Sometimes she's the one that comes off. Sometimes they go into almost sort of a, a three-back, um, obviously, Carpenter and Sonnet had the miss time for the World Cup. And I don't know if the personnel shift has maybe hurt them a little bit. You would think that having so many starting caliber defenders would, would be a boon. But, and I, uh, Menguez has kind of been in and out. And as far as Sonnet goes, I personally think this has been her worst professional year yet, which is ironic because she won a World Cup this year. But for the Thorns, it's just her decision making has not been good at all. I thought. The first three games before she went to the World Cup, she might have been the worst defender in the league. Yeah, and I mean she's she's been fine at times at coming back, but like I said, it just seems like at least once a game you just, just you see some sort of baffling decision, whether it's it's her being being caught out of position or her just having poor ball skills or her just just getting flat out beat and then doing something like a chokehold on Amy Rodriguez. Right. Well, the chokehold was on press, right? Rodriguez was just a takedown. But well, I thought the second one was the chokehold on, on – it looked pretty rough to me. But either way, you have to be cognizant when you're on the yellow card. And, again, it could have been a straight red. The league recap, which I don't put too much stock in, said it was a second yellow. But the referee comes running over with red card in hand. I never saw the yellow card come out, which leads me to believe yeah, that the ref was going straight red. Yeah, I think if rather not she'd been on a yellow, I think was was not relevant at that point. And it's one of those times where if you kind of have to make the foul because it was going to be a breakaway and she was pretty high up the pitch. It's just sort of the type of foul that it was, especially yeah. already sitting on a yellow. And that's what I'm saying. The decision making is just uh, the reactions of, of, oh, crap, I'm beaten are just a little bit reckless and a little that's- bit flaily. That was also a really high spot for the entire defense to be beat. Because if she doesn't make that play, it's three on zero, I'm pretty sure. And, yeah. and that was not close yeah. to the 18. That was pretty high up. Oh, no, it was almost a midfield. But isn't the biggest – and, look, the Thorns are still in first place, so you know there's not that much to criticize. But isn't the biggest missing element Lindsay Horan, who just hasn't – and I know she hasn't been totally healthy and she's been in and out because of the national team – but last year, like, Lindsey Horan was everywhere, box-to-box, box, scoring big goals. She would be marked in the box by two players and still score the 88th-minute game winner. I just haven't quite seen that this season. And I feel like if we could get that back for the Thorns, then maybe that will make everything else fall into place around her. Yeah, a couple a couple of things. One that is that I think that it, we should also mention that it's a very impressive for the Thorns to be in the position they are, where you can note multiple players not – 
being, you know, as good as they were last year. And also that how many of those had to miss enormous chunks of the season because of the World Cup. So kudos to Mark Parsons for getting what he does about out of players like Liz Ball, like Simone Charlie, like like Mitch Purse. Um, second, I agree with you. I think I think part of it is that she's suffering by comparison to an MVP season, kind of just like how North Carolina is suffering by comparison this year as opposed to the phenomenal season they had last year. But I agree. She just hasn't been as much of a force. She's still very, very good. She's just not kind of, I think, the standard that we've set for Lindsay Horan. I think particularly notable is is the, the lack of goals. I don't have in front of me exactly how many goals she has this year, but it's certainly not who's marking Horan in the box type anymore. All right, the table right now, Thorns are on 36, Courage are on 34, but the Courage have two extra games to play. Red Stars at 32, Royals at 31, Rain at 30, Royals and Rain both have one extra game from the Red Stars, but they also play each other once, which will help the Red Stars. And then I think Spirit on 25, Dash on 22, we can kind of ignore Sky Blues at 16, Orlando's at 14, but Thorns are going to host the Courage on Wednesday night, so this is not necessarily for the Shield, but if the Courage win, they go a point ahead, and they'll have two extra games to play. If the Thorns win, they'll be five ahead, and the Courage, though, will still be able to catch them if they win out because they'll have those two extra games. But a couple of things here. First of all, this game is Wednesday night, and both teams played on the weekend, so... I don't, I mean, I know that it has to happen at some point, but I would rather not the marquee matchup where they already played once without their best players out there. Um, I would prefer that game maybe not be uh, a Wednesday after both teams play on the weekend. And I also get that this is because ESPN probably just had the window available. Pride and Red Stars at seven is going to be on ESPN News, and then you have to go to your stream for Thorns and Courage. That just kind of leaves me feeling a little bit empty about the Wednesday night slate so to speak you know like this game probably shouldn't even be on a Wednesday but you know I would be really nice if you could make this game a bigger deal yeah I mean I've been pretty vocal about how much I dislike midweek games and they're they're kind of unavoidable and obviously when they set the schedule way back when they they couldn't necessarily know that this Portland Courage matchup was going to be a really big one the ESPN thing yeah it's a little bit it's a little bit frustrating because that was decided so much later. And at that point, they could have done. And I think they have done, a, for the most part, a better job of looking at their schedule and saying, these are the big ones. These are ones we want to get. But it is what it is, I suppose. Well, they might not have known this would be one against two, but it's not, wasn't, it shouldn't have been that hard to predict. It's not like it was. It's not like they're surprising us by being one and two. They have played three years in a row in the playoffs in the last two finals. Yeah, but I don't know that. You can ask the schedulers to say to put emphasis on certain matchups over at the beginning of that's, the year. I think that's a little bit unfair. You know what I'm saying? I hear you. I hear you. But it's un, you know I I just I I mean and I'll be watching. Unfortunate. It. <laughs> Unlike you, I actually like midweek games. I and I like late games because I get to kind of relax in the later hours. But um, yeah, I'll be watching it. But I think it's I think it's a harder sell than it than it should be. And you know it's part of an, ev- an evolving league. I suppose. All right. You mentioned the other stuff. We're not ignoring that. We're going to get to that probably in the third segment. But uh, we did have some other NWSL games. The U.S. national team played twice uh, since we last podcasted. Kristen Hamilton is the latest capped player for the U.S. So we will come back and talk about all that on the Equalizer podcast. 
Back on the Equalizer podcast with Chelsea Bush, I'm Dan Lawletter with a reminder to please rate and review the Equalizer podcast. The better ratings and reviews we get from you, the more great content we can bring your way. So please rate and review the Equalizer podcast today. Uh, recapping some of uh, what happened in the last two weeks since we were last on, U.S. defeated Portugal about as soundly as you would expect in a pair of friendlies, 4 nothing and 3 nothing. They set the standalone attendance record for a friendly for the first game there at Lincoln Financial Field in Philadelphia. Second game in Minnesota, Kristen Hamilton became the latest player to be capped by the U.S. And then in NWSL play, Hamilton actually made a really nice play to get the assist on a Crystal Dunn game winner. Courage beat Sky Blue 2-1 to one to keep them kind of in the pole position for the Shield, even though they're two points behind. We also had Rain uh, put three goals on Orlando inside of 20 minutes. Then the lights went out and lightning came. So that game didn't end until almost 2 a.m. Eastern time, 3-1 rain. And uh, Darian Jenkins, couple goals in that game, including a really beautiful one, which was her second in the middle of the three goals. And the Red Stars with Ertz and Davidson at center back for the first time after really neither one had played there all season. They beat Houston 3-0. And big surprise, Sam Kerr scored two of those goals. And big surprise, Jane Campbell stopped the penalty. Uh, but of all those things, Chelsea, where should we go next? Um, I did just see that apparently that's the record for penalty kick saves. I think she already had it. It's really uncanny how many PKs she stops. Yeah, um, I would like to. Yeah, so it's it's the single season record for PK saves at four. Yep, and this was on Nagasato. Ooh, and I thought the first time Naga, I think Nagasato got saved on one last year and then scored on the rebound. But not only is it remarkable that she stops all those, but it doesn't really help the Dash win a ton of games because they, I mean, the Amber Brooks effort on that last goal by uh, McCaskill, which was a nice goal for McCaskill because she hadn't scored since June of 18. But uh, I didn't like the Amber Brooks effort on that goal. And uh, they got beat up pretty good by Sam Kerr. In that game, that's the biggest Red Stars regular season game in what three or four years. Biggest how so? Well, they've usually been um, kind of firmly entrenched in the playoff race at this point, and they've been struggling. And Utah and the Rain both won before this game, so they actually came in in fifth. It's a team they should beat. So I actually thought there was a lot of pressure. I thought there was more pressure on them in a regular season game than there has been in quite some time, and Roy Dame shifted the personnel around a little bit. Yeah, yeah, maybe from that point of view. Um, obviously, it's got to be good for them to break that losing streak. Um, just to go back to Amber Brooks, though, I, I want to say that I, I've kind of been – I've usually been a champion of hers for several years. Um, I've kind of been a little bit disappointed this season. She's given up some of those PKs that Jane Campbell's had to face. She's been on the hook for. Um I just I think her positioning has not been good, and I think she just spends a little bit too much time arguing with the refs over calls sometimes, and and is a little bit too just steps too easily, and I think that the the dash um, going forward are going to have to take a really long look at that position. See, I would like to see Amber Brooks be able to be the second center back, as opposed to the person who's leading the back line. I think maybe in that case, 
she would have an opportunity to maybe do something. Let me throw a name out at you, by the way. We talked last time, remember it, about the expansion draft stuff, about how if there's an expansion draft and the Courage and the Red Stars are going to have too many players, so who are they going to leave unprotected? How about a Dow Kemper to the Dash trade before the Courage have to leave her exposed? Interesting. For who? Like Puerto? Oh, well, now you're asking me for too much. That was the first thing that came. I mean, <laughs> anytime you talk about a dash trade, the first thing that comes to mind is Huerta, because I do think she needs to probably go somewhere else again next season. Yeah, the interesting part about Huerta is that she's obviously not played up to her level this year. She's been very disappointing, and she's made no secret about the fact that she wants to be traded. Um, the downside is I think that she's hurt her trade value. So that would oh, yeah, be totally. for, the, for the dash to get an allocated player like Dog Kemper. That that's a tough one. I mean, I I think it would be great for Houston, but, right, but what? Why would North Carolina give it up? Well, because if they need to leave uh, allocated players exposed, and that hurts Dalkemper's trade value, or whoever they decide to put up on the block, and it doesn't have to be straight up either. Yeah, fair enough. But if you have to move one, I mean, remember the last time uh, Jim Gabara kind of just did Ashlyn Harris a solid and left her unprotected because he knew that she wanted to go to Orlando, and uh, he knew that she wanted to go to Orlando, and that Orlando wanted her. He could have very easily played hardball and protected her, left Krieger exposed, and forced Orlando into a trade to try to get Harris, and didn't. But I do believe that, it, you know, yeah, I mean, Dal Kemper for Huerta is a trade you would never make, but if you're going to lose her anyway, it's not such a bad deal to end up with Huerta. Or, you know, or someone of similar. I'm just throwing it out there. Yeah, no, I, but I do think that they need to do something. Um, I actually like Allie Pricelock a lot. I think she's shown some potential. I think she's she keeps a very cool head and doesn't seem to get flustered, which is a good quality in a very young center back. But she's not going to be the leader of, of any back line for a while. So well, that's she's the, got to do something. And that's the thing. I don't know that Brooks and Pricelock work together. I think maybe... If you had like a Sauerbrunn type, would probably make Pricelock a little bit better. And I think if you brought somebody else in, like say you did bring in Dal Kemper or who, someone similar to play with Brooks, I think that would make Amber Brooks better. Because yeah. She wouldn't, you know, she wouldn't be the focal point. She wouldn't always necessarily be marking the best player on the other side. Isn't it interesting too to be talking about? I don't think we would have talked about Ari Dal Kemper as being sort of the leader of any backline a year ago. No, six months ago, I don't think. Yeah, she's she's done wonderfully. I think her development for, for the Courage and for the U.S. Yeah, she was the Defender of the Year, what, two years ago? And I know, I, I'm pretty sure I voted that for was, her, but I... I didn't that year. Got some flack. I got some flack. Who who, who did you, who was the other one that was that was real good that year? Um, I think there were a couple, I think, that... Let's see, that was 17? 17. I think I would have voted for Menga's that year. I think I did. Okay. All right, all right, Menga. And then that was, you know, a fine pick, I'm sure. But I did think Dal Kemper regressed a little bit last year. But, tr- yeah, tremendous. Best best defender at the World Cup, I thought. For the U.S. Yeah, anyway. for the U.S. easily. You know, it wasn't Sauerbrunn's finest tournament. So what do we think yeah. of Ertz and Davidson in the middle today? Um, an um, acknowledgement that it wasn't working the other way? Maybe. I don't think they were uh, tested as much as maybe we we needed to get a really good feel for them. 
they're both quality players, and I think they work well together. It was, it was fine. I don't, I don't I mean, I don't know what to say. I don't know if that was necessarily an, an acknowledgement that it wasn't working. I do think that, that Katie Norton had been struggling. Um, so I think that sending her, as was reported on Twitter, was not only a coach's decision, but probably a good coach's decision. I think that needed to be done. Um, why it was a double change, I don't know. That was interesting. Well, Colaprico gets on the field when you drop Ertz back. And I think we've acknowledged that Colaprico, and it's mostly health-related, but did they miss her being as good as she's been? And I like Gordon on the outside because she's just so fast. And she gets up the flank so well. I feel like that, I mean, it's valuable to be fast as a center back. It's usually to recover from making mistakes. But I feel like her speed is a little bit lost when she plays centrally. So you think that moving maybe Davidson over instead of Naughton was a tactical choice, moving Ertz back was more to get Colaprico on the field? That would be my assumption right now. Usually my assumptions about these things are wrong because I try to get in coaches' heads and it never works. But yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised if if that was the reasoning on on both counts. And obviously you're not gonna move short because she's been about yeah. as good as, as it's been. You know, when Kerr scores twice more and uh you know, again McCaskill I think Mc, McCaskill's an interesting player because I thought McCaskill now, first of all, she got drafted by the Breakers, and then two weeks later, she didn't have a team. So then she goes to Sky Blue in the dispersal draft, and I thought she was really good early and then started to struggle, uh, was in with the national team around that time, and then fell off the page. I don't know if there were mental struggles or whatnot, but I think getting that goal might really uh, give her a boost. Yeah, and I like the way that they they played her sort of a withdrawn, more like a number ten, and kind of leaving Kerr up up top alone. I I wrote an article for the Equalizer, I guess last week earlier, I guess last week, um, naming like what a U.S. women's national team camp would look like if it didn't have any World Cup players. And I put McCaskill in. They're not necessarily that he's at the level now, but just that I see so much potential in her. The the qualities that she has, the versatility that she has. If somebody can unleash that. I mean, the ceiling is huge there, I think. And I think that her moving to Chicago and, you know, in her second year, learning what it is to be a professional, because I think that's part of what what her struggles were last year, was just adjusting not only physically, but, like you said, mentally, to what it takes to be a professional. And I think we see that in a lot of rookies, and they tend to fade. And I think that we could – Dames continues to get the best out of her, and I think we're slowly starting to see some of that, very slowly, but, but surely – um, yeah, she could be just a huge, huge piece for them going forward. And I think she has, for lack of a better expression, I'll go a little cliche, a high soccer IQ. Um, you know, holds the ball up well, doesn't always necessarily make the pass or the play that you would expect. And that I like that about her a lot. Yeah, I completely agree. All right, I know you wanted to talk a little bit about Sky Blue, who gave up a really bizarre own goal like 40 seconds into that game. So it. bizarre, nobody noticed. Yeah, the announcers didn't even, like, really uh, figure out what had happened. And, told, you know, look, I do those games. You're on the fly. It's not super easy. They tied it up. And then great uh, play by Hamilton. You know, the thing about Kristen Hamilton, who got capped and well-deserved, but everyone wants to know, will she still be as good 
now that the full complement of players is back. And obviously she's not going to, you know, score two hat tricks every other week like she was doing during the World Cup. But I think she's, I think she's, has proven that she's good. Like, you know, national team will see, but I mean, she's a legitimately good NWSL player right now on a good team. And the reason Dunn scored that goal, I thought, is because Hamilton created the space for her. Yeah, I've been I've been one who said I didn't think that she would you know prove to be as good. And I, I think I've been proven wrong. She's done very well. She's earned that you know continued to earn a spot in starting lineup. Um, and I think what sets Hamilton apart from some is that is she as naturally skilled as as say you know Crystal Dunn, Jess McDonald? No, probably not. But the work rate she puts in and and the, the time the effort she takes to to improve herself is just it's astounding and you're talking about on a team full of very very high work rates she she puts in the effort you can tell she's someone who just goes the extra mile and she has improved so much year over year I think you can sit down and you can look at her development to going from a completely under the radar player coming out of college completely just not even near the radar um, to getting a U.S. national team camp I think every season you can sit down and say okay she does X better, she does Y better, she does Z better. And I think this year was was she finishes better. She gets herself into those dangerous positions. And not being that, that focal point anymore, the World Cup players come out, she's still, she's doing a lot of good work on the wing. And not many players would have gotten themselves in the position and, and chased down that ball and, and done what she did and, and used the ball on her, on her feet the way she did to feed it to Dunn. Who, by the way, I don't think Dunn's, been all that great since she got back from the World Cup, just as an aside. Agree. As she was the anti-Sonnet prior to the World Cup, by far the MVP of the league. Small sample size, but she was she could not be stopped until the World Cup. I agree she's been only okay since the World Cup. Uh, by far, my favorite part of the league being in year seven as opposed to the other leagues, not only, I mean, obviously the fact that it just exists, but is that you're able to have stories like Kristen Hamilton because there have been enough seasons now for a player like Kristen Hamilton to develop. A player like Simone Charlie, who I don't even think anybody realized was a practice player last year for Portland and then got on the roster, got an opportunity, and, and made it happen. And other players like that all around the league. I think that's been my favorite thing about watching the evolution of not only the league but the players within the league over these past now nearly seven seasons. Amazing, right? That we're on year seven, yeah. almost over. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, I did, I did actually want to talk about Sky Blue in the sense that I thought that the first half was the best half of soccer we've seen from them all year. And it's unfortunate they came in a game and ended up they losing and and um, getting mathematically eliminated from the playoffs. Uh, but I just I thought that first half, even going down that bizarre own goal early, they played very very well. They were obviously not the best team on the field. But I think for once they weren't playing very, they weren't playing reactionary. They were taking their opportunities, a lot of catching the very, very high North Carolina line out in transition and taking advantage of that and actually, you know, beating their defenders, neither of whom are maybe the central defenders, maybe whom, whom they're the fastest and catching their outside backs up. And I, I don't know if that's just the way the game worked out or if that's a thing, sign of things to come from their new coach, but I thought it was very, very encouraging. All right, I'm going to follow up on that, but let's uh, change segments before I do. You've been listening to the Equalizer podcast, and uh, back with the final segment in a moment.
Back on the Equalizer podcast, and a reminder that the Equalizer podcast is sponsored in part by FBREF, sportsreference.com, FBREF.com for the latest and greatest women's soccer statistics, getting bigger and better every day, and it's time for the Equalizer Soccer Sports Reference Stat of the Week, and uh, we hate to belabor uh, the Sam Kerr point here, but two goals on Sunday against Houston give her 15 on the season. That is three consecutive seasons of 15 or more goals. There were only, there are only two other seasons of 15 or more goals in the entire history of the NWSL. Kim Little had 16 for the rain back in 2014. A year later, Crystal Dunn had 15 for the Washington Spirit. Nobody did it in 16. Nobody did it in 2013. Kerr went 17, 16. Now she's got 15. And it looks like she should break that record. She set 17 goals two years ago for Sky Blue FC. It's just, I just want to continue to point out just how remarkable Sam Kerr is as a goal scorer compared to anybody else who has played so far in the NWSL. And that is your sports reference equalizer soccer stat of the week. And make sure to hit up fbref.com for the latest and greatest in women's soccer stats. And we thank, as usual, fbref. Sports reference for their partnership on the podcast. All right, Chelsea, back to Sky Blue for a minute. Um, I didn't really see much of this game, but I think it's been a bit of an evolution maybe since Denise Reddy left the team. They've been playing a little bit more free, a little bit more, um, you know, a little quicker. They're a little bit more decisive in the attacking third when they get there. But at the same time, how bizarre is it that they – got rid of their interim coach to hire another interim coach. And then the old interim coach goes back as an assistant coach. And now the announcement that we thought was coming where they were going to have a full-time head coach didn't come. Or should we just not be surprised anymore? I've stopped being baffled by the same sky blue it does, to be honest. All right. I just want to make sure. But do you agree um, with me that it's been a bit of an evolution, that they've gotten better and better since ready was uh, showing the door. Yeah, I don't know if I would say it's not better and better as if they're improving each week. I do think they've mostly gotten better and are actually enjoying themselves, to be honest, enjoying soccer and seem to know what they're expected to do, which neither of which I think was, was true under Reddy. All right, let's get to uh, – we got two questions in the queue from the uh, hashtag EQZ pod, one from Joe Williams. Once again, the dash disappoint and are heading to another offseason with no playoffs. They need help on attack with actual finishers, midfielders who don't turn the ball over, and defenders who can actually defend only have a second rounder in 2020 draft. What would you do? Um, I guess we touched on this a little bit in the previous segment. I don't think it's as bad off as it's been in Houston, but when you've got two home wins and you've been in the league six seasons, you haven't been in the playoffs, yeah, something's got to change. I don't think they need a Attackers. I think they need maybe a distributor and a central defender, and I think they could be a playoff team. A little bit of killer instinct, maybe. I'd probably add a right back to that. Okay. As well. Fair um, enough. A couple things. One is that I don't like to judge coaches on their first season. I, I think that you have to give them a full off season and kind of see what they can do with the team. I've said that about Mark Skinner. I've said the same thing about James Clarkson. So I'd like to, to do that. Uh, your other options besides the draft, which I think they've drafted actually pretty well in, 
in the past they've got some good young players, discovery or trades. We've talked about the trade a little bit. I think that some of their international slots could be used better. Um, I think you have to take a long look. I love Kaya Simon, but if she's going to keep continuing to be injured, it's something you have to consider. I hate to say cutting a player because she's injured, but you're using an international slot on a player who's not, not playing. If you continue to think she's not going to get healthy, you have to make a really hard decision there. Um, Claire Polkinghorn left. That's an international slot freed up. So I try. It just, I don't think the dash I me. Mean, yeah, I think you're right about all those those positions you mentioned. And, you know, like we said, not getting much of where we've talked about how Ohio is not the same. Um, Daly just she's she's good enough. And I think obviously she would have gotten more goals this season if she'd been around the whole season. But she needs a little bit more assistance. But I just I don't see that they have like a spark in them, you know, like like a game changer. Maybe Daly's that they don't have have someone else. I, I just don't think you can rely on one person to to pull out a, a game tying or game winning goal in the 88th minute. I think you need more than one one person to do that. Um, but yeah, yeah. I, I I think most overall, I think I just give Clarkson a little bit more time. The, yeah, the official word on Polkinghorn, by the way, who left because her dad is very sick. I'm not sure if he passed away or not, but he did. Did um, so. There is the door is open for her to come back in 2020, um, but I might, if I were them, I might kind of encourage her to uh, not come back because I do think, you know, personal issues aside, they could have made better use of that particular spot. And uh, you know, look, I praise the move when it happened. So, uh, but I think. Yeah, I think they could maybe do better with that spot. I also think it's easier to find domestic defensive players than domestic players that can score goals. So it doesn't mean you shouldn't ever have a, an international player on your back line. But I think that like for like, you know, as a general blueprint, you want to have your international players that can score or create goals. But maybe they're a whole roster of complementary players at this point. Like you said, they need a spark. They need, you know, they don't go into important games and play like they need to win. And like, you don't see it in them that they, that they need to win, if that makes any sense. And that, maybe that's because they don't have that player. You know, maybe it feels like it should be daily or it should be Ohio, but it hasn't been yet. Not often enough anyway. Yeah, I agree. All right. Um, we also had another question that I lost and I don't, might not have been in the hashtag, but basically uh, what should the NWSL do about racism? And you kind of mentioned this at the top that uh, Adriana French tweeted and then deleted, um, insinuating that there were some racist comments coming from the stands in Utah. Um, the team is investigating. The league claims they are investigating. Um, you know, some of the Royals players spoke out about it, um, but, you know, to answer the question, what, what what do you think NWSL should do about this incident and about, you know, similar behavior in general? Um, I think that if you find someone in the stands who is saying racist things to a player, then you ban you escort them out and you ban them for the season. It's pretty simple to me. I think that, that's a no-tolerance policy, hands down. Um, and if, in general, God, we don't need to get into a discussion about society and, and all that things. We're just, I think it's a much, much bigger problem than just soccer, unfortunately. 
Yes, I think um, you know the league put out, the league told a, the league tweeted out a statement that in fact I don't know if I can pull it up um, and read the whole thing, but the league tweeted out a statement about it today, which I thought was a little bit late considering that it didn't really say enough. Uh, but let me well, find it. Says it. they're aware of it, doesn't it? Like this happened, and we're yes, which is about it. I mean, you have to issue a statement. You can't just ignore it till you actually have something. I get that. Um, right. Statement reads: We have been made aware of an incident at a game this weekend where racist comments were made toward one of our players. Racism in any form is unacceptable, and NWSL does not tolerate this behavior on the field nor in the stands. Per league policy, appropriate actions will be taken with the club and individual following the outcome of the investigation into the matter. I did read all those words as they were written in the tweet. Uh, the two things here are that, number one, this didn't say enough to warn it waiting until Sunday afternoon when this happened Friday night. And number two, a couple of reporters um, asked the league what the league policy was and nobody responded, which leads people to think that there is no league policy. And I also, I actually think it's okay if there's no league policy per se, because you can't cover everything in a league policy, but it might be a good time to come up with a league policy. Yeah, I think this is just another example of the league two being understaffed to not be able to get to it until, two, you know, a day and a half, two days later. That but could be, but this was a simple statement. Yeah, I mean, but did you see the uh, the thing with um, in Italy, the supporters club talking about saying racist chants um, basically towards one of their own players? No. Yeah, I don't remember which club it was, but it was Lukaku who was the player, and then they were chanting um, some some flat out racist statements. I think it was actually saying it to um, it, it was like another team saying it to them, and their own then. The other team supporters group come back and says, no, that wasn't intended to – that's not racist. I'm sorry that you took it that way, which is absolutely the worst possible thing to say when you're accused of racism because that's not, that's not how it works. Right. Um, you don't get to tell somebody else what is or is not racist um, and just that they were trying to intimidate the other team. And, and so I think, you know, we've seen that. We've, we've seen some – you know, there's some things going on in Portland with people being asked to take certain signs down. There's been obviously the, the controversy about the very common – um, Mexican chant that was highlighted. So I think this is just, it's such, unfortunately, such an issue with saying not only racist but homophobic things, and particularly with regards to Mexico and that chant. Um, yeah, I don't know that you can snuff it out entirely. That's what I'm trying to say. Like, it's it's such a, a much larger problem. I'm not, yeah, like I, like I said before, if you find a person doing it, you escort them out of the stadium at that very moment in time, and they will not be coming back for the rest of that season. I don't agree with lifetime bans in that instance because I do believe in, in giving people the opportunity to change. Obviously, if you have multiple um, offenses, then, yeah, you'd, you'd at some point have to incur a lifetime ban. But I do think for the rest of the season to, to impart just how serious it is. Um, but I don't know that you can change people's the way people think, unfortunately. No. Society well, sucks sometimes. No, you can't change the way people think. and. I mean, you don't know how many other how many people who aren't saying it are thinking the same thing. Um, but now, I, what happens if they can't find this person? Like at some point, don't you, you know? You just need to say we, you know, we investigated and we don't and have any evidence. Yeah, that's the unfortunate part. Unless you're going to find 
you know, people willing to come forward and say specifically it was this person in this seat and find some evidence of it. Because then you, at that point, first of all, you just have somebody's word. And I mean, that's not the way we've set up our justice system in this country. Um, but if you can find definitive proof, if you get them on video, and that's what I would say to anyone who's if you're sitting in the stands and you hear that, get them on video of who they are, where they're standing. And then what I do, like Tony DeChico went and tweeted um, every NWCL stadium's policy that he could find on on sort of what to do if you have an incident in the stadium, how to report it. And then the I think one of the ones who wasn't published, Sky Blue, went on to say this is what you do. And so I would think that, that it kind of unfortunately rests on the other people in the stands because they're the ones who are, are can identify who it is. Yes, unfortunately, players can hear it, but they can't do anything about it at that point. And even the stadium and, and then the league and the clubs can only do so much as far as figuring out who it is. So hopefully, you know, people around them can root that out. Right. And also it should be in some way up to the people in the stands to kind of want the, to have, you know, to kind of police their own environment to some degree. Obviously you can't kick somebody out of a stadium and you want to be, you know, you don't want to go too far in terms of how much you police it yourself, but the fans at large should be doing their best to create the atmosphere that they want, which hopefully is one without any of that sort of stuff. And, um, you know, maybe just to, hey, that's not necessary, gets it stopped. Yeah, and if you're uncomfortable doing that, at least report it and then leave it up to the authorities to determine whether or not that's an offense that needs escorting out or whatever. I will also say that this is not an issue that has come up a lot in this league. So that leads me to put a lot more – I think it has a lot more credibility. Like, it started with tweets from A.D. France. She's not someone that – sort of speaks that way very often, which leads me to think that 100% should she heard something. Yeah, and I mean, I think the NWSL does a good job in general being a more inclusive league than maybe some, certainly some other sporting leagues in this country and maybe even some other soccer leagues in, around the world. But, you know, do I think it's the first time this has happened? Absolutely not. Um, that's just the society that we live in. It's just... The first time that I, I can I can think of that it got reported, which I think is is good on everyone for who who did speak up about it. Yeah, and honestly, you know, the more this builds and grows, the more it's going to happen. And I'm not saying that as that it's something that should be accepted, but you know, you're getting more people, more passion. You're going to have more incidents that go over a line that you don't want to go over. So and that also makes it important to deal with it in a better way right now so i would you know the league tweeted that they per league policy i think they should make that league policy public and if it doesn't exist they should figure it out this week and then make it public absolutely all right um do we want to close with something non uh something that doesn't have to do with the uh <laughs> incidents in the stands friday night in uh, in utah okay well, give me something. Oh, uh, the U.S. actually played some games that we, we didn't talk about. They they beat uh, Portugal 4-0 four, four and 3-0. Carly Lloyd had a brace. Christian Hamilton got a cap. That's about all I know about those. I was out of the country for one. The other one I just I couldn't do. Yeah, it. rub it in. Rub in your vacation. Man, thanks. <laughs> um, great attendance. Great attendance. Yeah, look, the team is, is the thing. Now, how about Megan Rapino back on the field for the rain? There you go. We forgot we didn't talk about that. At about one thirty in the morning <laughs> Eastern time. Thanks to yeah, the lightning. Yeah, so uh, 
They're playing. Out. They're playing at Audi Field uh, soon, aren't they? Uh, yeah, this Saturday coming up. Really nice game to uh, for her to start, maybe or at least get some decent minutes. Yeah, she probably was happy to get kind of low stress minutes because I think her role, if she doesn't start again, her role is just going to be to come in and try to score, and she didn't need that because it was uh, that game was over pretty much from the get go. I would imagine if she were more game fit, that's a game she wouldn't have come in. But they kind of have to get her in because she hasn't played for them. She hasn't played for them since the playoff game last year when she was hurt yeah, in that game if, too. Yeah, and if the rain do make the playoffs, she's absolutely going to be important. So it's a good timing for them to spend, you know, this next month of games getting her back to to ninety minutes fit. Absolutely. All right. Well, on that note, we will uh, step aside for the week. You've been listening to the Equalizer podcast for Chelsea Bush. I'm Dan Lowell. Talk to you next week.